save us. If you have a Bible, please open to, to uh, Philippians chapter 4 for the, first, for the last time uh, this year. Our theme for 2019 is to magnify, and our supreme desire is to magnify Jesus Christ in our lives. And Philippians 2 describes one of the most majestic passages in all the Bible describing his glory and power. Do you hear that? That's my tie. <laughs> it's to keep me in tune, all right? It's to keep me in tune. So let's all stand together, and we will read about a joyful goodbye that the Apostle Paul shares with the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, and we close out this great book beginning in verse 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute or greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May we pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the salvation in our Savior. And Father, I pray, I pray today that if there be one that knows not for certain where they will spend eternity, I pray that today they will turn their life over to Jesus Christ to be born again into God's family, to experience the forgiveness of all of their sins. Father, I pray for each Christian here today that our heart and soul will be sold out to love and live and serve Jesus Christ, for he is worthy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we have studied this book this year, God has done a great work in, in my heart. As my life and, and ministry is concerned, I have a much more contented spirit as I am learning to trust that God is in control of everything. I, I do what I can, I do my best, and I have to leave the rest to God. I, I want to have a greater desire uh, to please and to magnify Jesus Christ more than anything else. And so the situations and the things and the, the people that are out of my control, uh, I, I just need to be more settled as you do to, to let God do his work in their lives in his time. So I feel like a student listening to the Apostle Paul teaching, teaching me to rejoice no matter what and to be content uh, at whatever God allows to come into my life. Apparently I'm not the only one learning from Philippians because there is a, uh, a Bible app, version that 400 million people access worldwide. 400 million people, and they have stated that the most popular verse of 2019 comes right out of this book, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing, that is, don't be worried, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And so many of us around the world need some help in this area of turning our worry list into our prayer list. And it's so easy for us to become frustrated because other people, I'm talking family and friends and coworkers and, and neighbors, they just don't see it my way. But the people that, that irritate us 
are nothing compared to the adversaries the Apostle Paul had both in and out of the church. Philippians chapter 1. I mean, their words and their actions hurt him deeply, but Paul chose joy in spite of his critics. Paul chose joy in spite of difficult circumstances. He just learned to be content. He was content if he had a little. He was content if he had a lot. And it really comes down to this. You see in your notes. Am I willing to let the Holy Spirit do his work in my life? Am I willing to let the Holy Spirit do his work in the lives of others? If the answer is yes, then I can have joy even when others do not see things my way. Now, I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the faith. I'm not, not talking about compromising God's truth. I'm talking about the same kind of conflicts that the Apostle Paul had in the, with the Philippian church that he's dealing with in every chapter, and he keeps calling them to unity. They all didn't have to get their way all the time. But notice how he challenged them to stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. I mean, if there is one thing that every single one of them could agree upon, it was we are here, we are united to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So one commentator gave some practical applications of these Philippian truths. Uh, number one in your notes, look in your heart and let go. Look in your heart and let go. Uh, what, is, what is it down inside you, inside you that is stunting your spiritual growth? What is stopping you from becoming a joy-filled Christian, a contented Christian, a serving Christian? And when you find something that you are hanging on to too tightly, well, you need to make the choice and deliberately let go. We have God's power to help us. I can do all things through Christ. Ask God to help you pry your fingers loose. You see, inner joy begins when you have no other gods in your heart. Number two, look around at needs and respond. Uh, don't wait to be asked. Don't wait for someone else to do it. I mean, take the initiative. See the need and take the lead. The Philippians saw Paul in need. They heard he was in prison, and so they passed the plate. They did it again and again to be able to meet his needs. When other churches shirked their responsibility to be able to give to missions, they didn't. And so look around. Look in the back of the connection card, and, and whether it be singing, there's some spaces up here in the choir. to If you can sing, sing. If you can serve, serve in the nursery, change a diaper. If you want to help in a children's ministry, if you want to help in a, the Monday night basketball outreach or some out outreaches coming up in January, look at the back, back of the connection card. Say, you know, I can do that. See the need. Take the lead. Number three, look up and rejoice. And so as generous givers, we are the recipients of his riches in glory by Christ Jesus and enjoy them. Never forget the blessings that God gives to, to you every day. I mean, count them, thank them, thank God every day. The happiest people on earth are those who voluntarily give and serve God by serving others. And so Paul tells us, if you want a joy-filled life in Christ, Stay connected with God's people in church. Even as you grow older, the more involved you remain, the less concern you will have for how old you are. And so this winter, 
This winter, when, when the gray cloud of depression and discouragement begins to set over your soul, why not grab a hot cup of coffee or tea, uh, find a comfy spot, take 10 minutes, and read through Philippians again. It is the most upbeat of all of Paul's letters. What will you find? Oh, you're going to find joy. You're going to find joy in living in chapter 1. You're going to find joy in serving in chapter 2. You're going to find joy in submitting in chapter 3. You're going to find joy in resting in chapter 4. You can't miss it. Uh, there is joy all over this letter, and it just is springing from Paul's heart. So, don't let the doomsdayers, and don't let the sky is falling uh, crowd get you down. <coughs> No matter how bad the news, never forget that Jesus Christ is triumphant. I, I love the way G. Campbell Morgan said it there in your notes. I have no sympathy with people who tell us today that these are the darkest days the world has ever seen. The days in which we live are appalling, but they do not compare with the conditions in the world when Jesus came into it. Yet the dominant note of Paul's letters to the church it is a note of triumph. If ever I am tempted to think that faith is almost dead today, it is when I listen to the wailing of some Christians saying, everything is going wrong. Oh, be quiet. Think again. Look again. Judge not by the circumstances of the passing hour, but by the infinite things of our gospel and our God. I love his spunk. When he encounters the grumblers and the doomsdayers, he just says to them, oh, be quiet. Oh, be quiet. Christian, we are on the winning side. We are on the winning side. Amen. Amen. Even if we are in prison for our faith, even if we were to be martyred for our faith, we're still on the winning side. And we shall meet again on that glorious shore called heaven. And so now Paul concludes with a, a joyful goodbye, and he starts here with a doxology. We find it in verse 20. He breaks into a, a doxology. Look what he says. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Many of us remember closing a church service by singing the doxology. Now, how many, how many can remember that growing up? Anybody here? Okay, lots of you, lots of you. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go ahead. If you know it, uh, sing it, sing it with me. And it would be better that you sing louder so you don't have to hear me as much. So here we go. <laughs> no, 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 okay. Here we go. Ready, ready, here we go. Praise God from whom blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And then in my 
white church, we would sing amen again, and we'd sing amen again and again. It was torturous, let me tell you. It was hard. Uh, you see, it was sung. It's a great song, but it, it's a great song, but it was sung as a ritual. It was sung as a dead tradition. Uh, there was no life. There was no enthusiasm. There was no joy or singing from the heart, and that's not what you have here. That's not what Paul is doing here. He, from his heart and his joyful goodbye, he answers several questions. He answers, what is a biblical doxology? A doxa is glory, logos is word. It is a song or prayer of praise to God, gratitude to God. Doxologies are responses of praise to great truth. And so Paul has just been writing these wonderful truths of Philippians, and he gets to this place and he says, Stop, stop. I just have to say, I have to say, Wow, wow. Now unto God and our Father be glory and praise and honor forever and ever. Amen. He's excited. He's excited. He does this several times in his letters. In fact, if you read the book of Romans, 11 chapters of doctrine, great truth. And you get to that, and Paul stops and he says, time out, time out. I've, I've got to give praise to God. And so what does he say? It's in your notes. Uh, he, he praises God. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Days past finding out, Romans eleven thirty three. On page three, you see that praise is always our response to truth. You see, the more you learn about God, the more you learn about Christ, the more you want to praise Him. I, and I love our choir, and many of you have told me how much you love the choir. In fact, in, fact, in our area, uh, there's very few enthusiastic choirs. In fact, in our area, there are few choirs. But they sing praise to God, and some of those songs stick in my heart and mind. Our choir sings a great song. It's a doxology. How can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the king, and it makes my heart want to sing. That's a doxology. I mean, you just, you, you learn about God, and you can't keep it in. It's just gotta, it's just gotta come out. And when you discover truth about God, you want to sing, you want to shout, you want to shout, amen. And so Jesus said to the woman of the well, he said, you see, true worshipers, they worship in spirit. That is with all of their heart, with all of their being. And they worship in truth. You can't worship God unless you know truth. You can't truly honor and please God unless you know the truth about God that's found in the word of God. And then he said to that woman, for the Father, God the Father seeketh such to worship him. John 4, 23. We are worshipers. This is who we are. This is what we do to give praise to God in response to our salvation, in response to his love to us. And we say with Paul, amen. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? In the old church it was amen. But here it's amen. It's amen. It means so be it. It means let it be true. When you say amen, you are saying, I believe it. When you say amen, you're saying it is true. 
Deuteronomy chapter 27 is a whole chapter where God says, and the people are to say, amen. And the people are to say, amen. I mean, it's like 15 times. And the people are to say, amen. 1 Corinthians 14, 16, Paul says, we say amen in the assembly. You might be thinking, but I grew up in a denominational church and nobody said amen. But now you're not in a dead church. You're in a live church, a church that believes the Bible, a church where people get saved, and you can't help but praise God with songs and to say amen. I, I mean, I, I hear reporters on TV saying amen, like Jim Gardner of Action News. He says amen, and, and Christian reporters like Todd Starnes and Jesse Waters and Ainsley Earhart, I mean, they're saying it on national news, and they have all of those critics out there, and if they're willing to, to say it on national news, then you shouldn't hesitate to say it in a congregation filled with Christian people. Amen. I see we're connecting here. This is good. All right. <laughs> it's okay to get excited about your faith. It's okay to get excited about being forgiven. Amen. Glory to God. Amen. Now, I'm not advocating people to run around the auditorium. I know some places like to do that, but if you do it around here, I just want you to know that, that uh, a guardian angel might think you're charging the pulpit and they're going to tackle you about the 15-yard line. Amen. <laughs> it's going to hurt. Do all things decently and in order, orderly. As saints, we worship. So here's another question that he, he asks. What is a saint? Verse 21, what is a saint? Salute or greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Years ago, I heard a humorous story. Two older brothers in a country church, and they were just scoundrels. I mean, foul mouth, late night drinkers, cheaters, just, just a mean pair of brothers. And one passed away, and the other came to the pastor and said he wanted him to preach his brother's funeral. And he said, if you will call my brother a saint, I'll give you this $100,000 check to the building fund. You can say what you want, but just call him a saint. Well, the young pastor went home just distressed over the situation. He told his wife, and he said, we sure could use $100,000 for our building fund, but you know, I have to tell the truth. The pastor agreed to preach the funeral, and during it he said, our dear brother, as most of you already know, had his weaknesses. He had his failures. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a late-night drinker. He was a bar hopper. He had a filthy mouth, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> So what is a saint? Well, there are some misunderstandings that many of us have had over what a saint is. Is it someone who has been mummified and canonized? Well, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Churches, if you want to become a saint, you got to die. You got to die. You have to be dead for at least five years. You have to live a virtuous life. You have to have two verified post-mortem miracles. That is, two miracles surrounding your tomb after you died. You have to be declared by the Pope before you can be a saint. 
So both Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox churches, they teach their followers that when a person becomes a saint, you can then pray to the saints, which the Bible forbids. You say prayer is a form of worship, and we're only to worship God, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. There's only one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So that's the misunderstanding of a saint. How about the biblical understanding of saints? If someone were to ask you, if they were to ask you, if you are a saint, I want you to be able to give a biblical answer, God's answer to them. And so the word saint means holy one. Holy one, agias. All the Christians at Philippi were saints, and they were very much alive when Paul wrote them, even if they didn't always act saintly. Paul and uh, Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. And so in the Bible, every Christian is called a saint, a holy one. You're not holy because you go to church. You're not holy because you get baptized. You're not holy because you stop smoking and drinking and chewing tobacco. No, you become holy the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your entire account, account of sin, which if you think it's in the hundreds of thousands, you're underestimating. It's in the millions, and your entire account of sin is canceled. It is forgiven. And when God the Father, when God the Father looks at your soul, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so saint refers to your, your position in Christ, not to your practice. Should your practice, how you live, begin to match your position? Well, absolutely. And we call that Christian growth. We call it spiritual growth. We call it sanctification. In fact, the word saint and sanctification come from the same root word. It means, it means holy, set apart. So if you are saved, I've got good news. You're a saint. You're a saint. Whether you act like it or not. You may have a relationship with God, uh, but your sin will, will hinder your fellowship and your walk with God. And so the question is, if you sin, are you still a saint? Well, that's a good question. Let me answer it this way. Can you think of all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to different churches? Can you think of a church that was so messed up, had so many problems, and was filled with sin? What church would that be? The church of Corinth. And so now look what the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church of Corinth, with all their sin, all their problems, he says to them, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Called to be saints. And so if God calls the Corinthian saints with all their failures, all of their sins, all of their errors, if he calls them saints, then we here at Valley Forge Baptist are also certainly saints. It's good news. And so Paul is glad to remind the Philippians that they are, they are saints. And he greets them, salute, greet. Now, this is not just a simple hello. It's more deeper than that. He's saying, he's saying you Philippians, I care about you. He's saying, I love you. I want you to grow spiritually. But notice, if you have a pen or pencil, circle the word every. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. 
God wants you and me to love every saint at church, even the ones you don't like. I'm just being honest with you. I'm under no pretense that our church or any church are always going to, we're going to hold hands and sway and sing kumbaya and get along. Most of us have trouble getting along with ourselves, much less getting along with hundreds of other people. But the people you don't like are also in Christ Jesus. They are important to Christ. And if they are important to Christ, they need to be important to you and to me. You don't have to agree with them, but you're required to love them and to show love to them. In fact, if you don't love them, the Apostle John questions the sincerity of your salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. It is a sign of great immaturity to dislike people that you don't, that don't agree with you. So what is the doxology? It is a prayer, it is a song of praise and gratitude to God. What is the saint? It is a title for every Christian. And our church is filled with saints. One last question. Who are the brethren with Paul? Well, we find Christians with Paul, the end of verse 21, the brethren, and that includes the sistren, all right? The brethren and the sistren, which are with me, they greet you, and all the saints salute you. All the saints greet you. Now, the Christians with Paul, scholars suggest this includes Timothy and Tychicus, Aristarchus. Uh, some suggest Luke and Mark. The gospel writers were there. This is where Paul led Onesimus uh, in prison, the Philemon's runaway slave. He led him to Christ, wrote that little note, sent him back home. Uh, many of the saints listed in Romans chapter 16, they're sending their greeting to the church at Philippi. Here's the point I want you to see. There's no division of priesthood or hierarchy or importance. They're all in the same level playing field. This group of saints is greeting that group of saints. There's no superiority here. We're all together in the family of God. No matter what their background, what their experience, we're equal in Christ. Notice also the saints of Caesar's household. And this is pretty cool. I want you to see this verse 22. All the saints salute you, chiefly, especially they that are of Caesar's household. Do you know who Caesar is at this moment? A man named Nero. Do you know how wicked Nero is? I mean, you, when you think of Hitler, you think of Nero. This man was, he persecuted Christians so bad, he blamed them for the burning of the city of Rome. He took them, he, he tortured them, he imprisoned them, he fed them to wild beasts. To line his gardens, history records that he would take Christian people, strip them, impale them on a spike, put oil-stained coats of fur upon them, and light them on fire. For his drunken parties, lighting Nero's gardens. That's the Caesar the Apostle Paul 
is referring to here. They of Caesar's household greet you. I think Paul just loves saying this with a gleam in his eye, a smile on his face, and joy in his heart. Yes, yes, can you believe it? The saints in Caesar's household greet you. That's right, from Nero's household. As you can imagine, these words have stirred the imaginations of Christians for centuries. Paul's reference to Caesar's household is intriguing. Could he have the emperor's wife and children in mind? How about the in-laws? How about the distant relatives? Well, Caesar's household is a term that refers to a large body of people on Caesar's payroll, including his family, members of the elite imperial guard that served Caesar, a large network of people including high-ranking officials, administrators, servants in the royal palace. I mean, this included the, the, the cooks and the builders and the judges. There is one legend. His wife, Claudia Act, became a Christian. We know for certain that her slaves were Christians. You say, how did this happen? Well, you see, it's one thing for the Roman soldiers to be chained to Paul 24-7 while he is in prison, to guard him. But it's another thing for Paul to be chained to the soldiers. You talk about not being able to get away. So what did he do? He told them how he got saved. He told them how they could get saved. And guess what happened? They got saved. And they got saved, and they would go back, and they'd tell their wives, they'd tell their children, they'd tell their friends, and they'd tell their neighbors. And it was like a, it was like this, uh, a big splash in a pond, and all these ripples keep going out. And every eight hours, he gets a new soldier. He gets a new prospect. You talk about witnessing. God brought the lost to him, and he shared his faith. And there's joy. It's his joy, and it's our joy. See, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a story. He said there's a woman, and she lost a coin. And she searched all day for the coin, and she found the coin. And she called her friends, and they, they rejoiced. And then Jesus said there's this guy that he had sheep, and he lost a sheep. And he searched all day, and he found the sheep, and he called his friends, and they, they rejoiced. And there's this guy who had a son, and he lost his son. And the son was found, and he called his friends, and they they rejoiced. I want you to know that every time, every time someone opens their heart and receives Jesus as their Savior, there's joy in heaven. If there's joy in heaven, there should be joy in God's church. There should be joy in your heart. The Spirit of God is continuing to move in 2019, soon in 2020, bringing people into his family. That's our joy. That's Paul's joy. So what happened in Rome in the first century reminds me of what happened in Moscow at the end of the last century during the Russian Orthodox Easter in 1991. It's in the palace of Congress in the Kremlin. You probably have seen pictures of it. There was a Christian concert the oversized statue of Lenin was covered up. And instead of messages of communism, instead of messages of, of atheism, a large American Christian choir sang praises to Jesus Christ, followed with a gospel message by Bill Bright. 
And it then aired on nationwide Soviet TV. And that afternoon, those Christians, they, uh, they left that great hall and they went out into Red Square. I'm talking Red Square in Moscow, Russia. And they passed out 100,000 gospel tracts. They passed out New Testaments in the Russian language. And we could say the way Paul said it, even in Lenin's household, the gospel was proclaimed. Glory to God. Glory to God. So it is today in our own country. God has allowed a devout and outspoken Christian, Mike Pence, to be the vice president of our great country. His wife is a Christian school teacher there in Springfield, not far from where my parents lived. We are on the winning side. May I say it again? We are on the winning side. Our God reigns. And so now Paul closes with his usual message of grace, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And with that, the Apostle Paul rolls up the scroll. He hands it to Epaphroditus. He grabs his arm and he says a prayer of safety. He embraces him and he sends him on his way. Possibly never to see him again on this earth or that church family. But he will forever enjoy their fellowship in heaven. My question to you today is, have you experienced the grace of Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Are you a saint? You see, one day sooner than you think, you will have said your final goodbyes in this life and you will forever enter heaven or hell. It was Tuesday, the day before my father's memorial service that I preached down in Virginia. That Tuesday morning, we loaded up the kids, the clothes. We went to the school to vote. It was, it was election day. So we went in and we voted. We came out, we got in the car, and as we began uh, driving out of the parking lot, uh, a couple from our church, they had voted, and they were coming out too. And they stopped, and we greeted them, and we said, uh, yeah, we're, we're on our way to Virginia. My dad's funeral's tomorrow. He's almost 94. And they said, we're going to a funeral too up in Harleysville. They said, our, our daughter's boyfriend's father passed away. He was raking leaves and he fell over dead at the age of 57. I want you to know we have no guarantee on tomorrow. We have no promise of another day of life. This could be the last day we are alive. And so Jesus gives an invitation. Come to me. Be saved today. There in your notes. Now is the time to give your heart and your life to Christ. Rejoice that you are a saint. And so when you came to church today, I knew I had some good news to tell you. 
You're nothing but a bunch of saints. You're a bunch of saints. And that is really good news. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God and how it blesses our hearts and encourages us. It takes us out of depression and discouragement and despair and brings us into the joyous light of Jesus Christ as we consider all that you have done for us. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, I want to ask you today, according to the Bible, are you a saint? Are you a child of God? Was there a moment in your life where you decided to become a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ and you're born again? I'm not asking if you were baptized. I'm not asking if you were confirmed or became a church member. I'm not asking if you are sincerely trying to do good. I'm asking if you're saved. And if God has given you that peace in your heart and you know that heaven's your home because you're trusting in Christ alone, you're not ashamed to be called a Christian. Would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? I have asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. God bless you. You may put your hands down. You hear today, you say, Pastor, I, I think I'm going to heaven. I, I hope I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have, I have some doubts. Do you know two ladies in the first service today said, that's me. And what they did is they raised their hand and they prayed and they received Christ as their Savior. And you can do that too. You can do it right now. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so today if you understand that, that your sin will keep you out of heaven, you understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you and that he rose again, and now he offers you a gift, the gift of eternal life. And by prayer and commitment, you can be brought into God's family right now. So if you have doubts about going to heaven, I want you to know that God brought you here today to hear the good news, that he'll take away your doubts. He'll welcome you into his family. Now, my prayer cannot save you, but I can pray with you, and you can pray from your heart. You can pray sincerely. You can pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Would you like to do that now? If you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart, don't say no to God. Say yes to receive Christ. If you'd like to do that with me now, simply raise your hand. Would you hold your hand up high just for a moment? Pastor, I want to pray and receive Jesus as my Savior. I don't know for certain that heaven is my home, but I want to be saved today. I want to receive Christ. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all, I would like to trust Christ as my Savior. Father, I pray now for each Christian, each saint. God, help us. Help us to walk and to live in such a way to show you and others that Jesus Christ is alive in my heart and life. Help us to, to love the other saints at Valley Forge Baptist, to show love and kindness and forgiveness, and to pull together in unity to share the gospel with others. Bless now in this invitation, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation this morning. It is a public invitation. Have thine own way. Have thine own way. And if there's a decision you want to make, you can step out. You can pray at the altar. If you want to speak to a pastor, a pastor's wife, just come. Just come. And we will meet you. Let's sing together as we sing. Amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus was born in a manger in a stable and not in a palace? He's been looking for humble places to live ever since. And that means any of us are qualified, I believe, for to make our hearts his Bethlehem. What a great song. Thank you so much tonight. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25 with me tonight. Exodus chapter 25. You know, I love scripture. I love the stories that are all throughout the Bible. And some of the most obscure stories in the Bible have the most powerful meanings, I find. And tonight my message is going to deal with one of those very obscure people that is in our Bible. His name only appears 20 times throughout Scripture, and that's because he appears here in these books of history, and, and the history is repeated a few times. Um, but I want to share with you tonight uh, a story that really touched my heart. Last Sunday, as Pastor was preaching, as you remember, he preached about uh, Yuza touching the Ark of the Covenant and it, it, him being killed instantly, which is exactly what God said would happen. Uh, it was not a surprise, or should not have been a surprise. But it all started because they brought the, the ark on a new cart rather than the way God designed for it to be carried. And if you'll look here in Exodus chapter 25, just to get us started tonight, in verse 15 you'll notice a very interesting verse about the ark of the covenant. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 15, The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And last Sunday night after Pastor preached, I went out and met him in the lobby, and I said, you know, it's interesting that God provided in the actual structure of the ark the way to transport it the way he designed. As a matter of fact, it's the only piece of furniture of the Old Testament furniture that would have been in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple, but it was the only furniture in the tabernacle that had the staves permanently affixed to it. Uh, the, all the other pieces of furniture, the staves were removed after it was in its place, but the Ark of the Covenant, according to the Word of God here in Exodus, said that those staves were to remain permanently there and affixed. So my point is that if if David and the children of Israel had followed God's plan originally, uh, Uzzah probably would not have lost his life that day. However, it's important for us to realize that the Word of God is true, and God doesn't say things he doesn't mean. Amen? Amen. And so we know that for every person who is a sinner that the wages of sin is actually going to be death. As much as people like to say today in religion, well, as long as you believe in the higher power or you, uh, you believe in, in God and his love for you, you're going to be okay. I'm sorry to tell you, God does not lie. Sin will not enter into heaven. And everything God has said about sin is going to come true just the way he said that it would, just like it did here in the book. And by the way, go back to 2 Samuel now, if you would, with me. 2 Samuel chapter 6, that's where we were last week. Uh, with Pastor's message, and we're going to go back there again tonight. And I want to introduce you to somebody that's mentioned here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and uh, we're going to study his life together tonight. But let's have a word of prayer together, if you would, with me tonight. Father, we're going to open your word. It's an incredibly precious book. Every word, every jot, every tittle, every period, every comma, 
was breathed out of your heart onto these pages. We are so grateful to have in our own language the Word of God. And tonight, Father, as we open it, we pray that you would help us to treat this book not like we got it off the library shelf, but like we pulled it right out of heaven and we laid it in our laps in front of us tonight. God, help us to give the importance to it that it deserves. And I pray that the Spirit of God would take the words that are on these pages. You promised us that he would guide us into all truth. And so tonight I'm asking you to help me to preach your word so faithfully that we will be guided by the Spirit of God into the words of truth that are here on these pages. Help us, Lord, not to look at these things as though they're trivial or they're just stories that happened in the past. Help us to realize that you chose these stories to be in the 66 books of the Bible for our benefit today in 2019. Help us, Father, to get everything we can out of these passages tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look back in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I want to review just a little bit with you. Uh, verse 3 says, And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. So we see that they did, again, I pointed out earlier, they did not follow the plan that God had for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. They decided that they had a better way or that they had a, a brand new cart. They had these good oxen that it would be a good idea, just easier probably, just to put it on there and quickly move it. However, we see what happened. It says in verse 6, When they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And so very, very succinctly, God tells us exactly what happened. Yuza did not follow the plan of God, neither had any of the others there. But when Yuza touched the ark, his life was instantly taken from him. This is where I want you to pick up the story tonight. David, at that point, became afraid. Uh, it says in verse 9 that David was afraid. Drop down to verse 10, if you would, with me. So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom. And here's the man that I want you to meet tonight. His name is Obed-Edom. And he is called here the Gittite. So David, fearful of the ark, and, uh, and, and I think a little bit miffed that God had killed Yuza. Maybe he was a little upset with it. Uh, he decided, I'm not taking the ark of, of the covenant into my house. Let's put it over here in the house of the Gittite. Let's put it in Obed-Edom's house. Now, I don't know that Obed-Edom was anything special, but at this point, he gets to have the Ark of the Covenant in his home. Now, I want you to realize when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the home of Obed-Edom, he displays no fear. We don't read anything about Obed-Edom being afraid. David was afraid. Uh, the Philistines, by the way, were afraid of the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, it went from uh, Beth Shemesh to Peruza, and, and finally, uh, everywhere it went, death followed it. But Obed-Edom was probably a God-fearing man, and as he took the Ark of the Covenant into his home, he was just wanting to do service to the Lord. He would do whatever God gave him to do. By the way, that's a great quality, isn't it? Let's try that one more time. Obed-Edom decided that he would just do whatever God gave him to do and put in front of him. That's a good quality, isn't it? Amen. Remember Pastor's message this morning about the amens? I like that message, by the way, especially for tonight. Anyway, 
Uh, and so I want you to consider three things about Obed-Edom tonight. Very simple message. The first one that I want you to see is the discovery that Obed-Edom made. The discovery that Obed-Edom made. Now he's introduced to us in verse 10 as, as a Gittite. We don't hear much more about him, but I want you to see verse 11. The Bible says, And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The discovery that Obed-Edom made, wow, for the last three months since the Ark of the Covenant has been in our home, we've been blessed. Now I want you to realize that the Ark of the Covenant that David feared became a huge blessing to Obed-Edom. Matter of fact, he didn't fear it. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, represented the presence of God to every Jew. As a matter of fact, the Shekinah glory of God that led the Jews out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, if you remember how they knew when to move, when, when, when the cloud, pillar of cloud stopped or the pillar of fire stopped, they placed the Ark of the Covenant directly underneath that cloud. And it would remain there. If the cloud moved off of where the Ark of the Covenant was, they said, boys, it's time to move. Let's pack up. And they had no idea where they were going. They would just follow the Shekinah glory of God, and they would move because that, that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire represented the presence of God. And so I want you to see tonight that, that when Obed-Edom has the Ark of the Covenant in his home, it's almost like God came to live in his house. And when God comes to live in your house, guess what happens? Blessings follow. I mean, this is what happens. Obed-Edom experienced, he, found, he made a discovery. He wasn't real sharp. He didn't have to be real sharp to make this discovery. The discovery was when God's presence is, is with you, God brings his blessing along with that presence. Now, I want you to think about it today. Um, inside of that piece of furniture, Pastor asked you last week, what were the three pieces or three things that were inside the Ark of the Covenant? What were they? Aaron's budding rod, the Ten Commandments, and manna. Very good. Those things to the Jews represented God's presence in very difficult times. Are you with me? By the way, do you have things you can point back to in your life and say, do you remember when God used that in our lives or God used that person in our lives and we were really going through some tough things or this scripture came to our hearts during tough times? Now, if you've never been through tough times, you don't know what I'm talking about. Because when you go through tough times, guess what? God doesn't run away. God moves closer. And when he moves closer, some of the simplest things... I can remember some, we're, we're facing some tough times, and, and I'm not lying to you. We, we'd go to church, and, and they'd sing a hymn that was the, a hymn just for us. And, and then and the pastor would read a verse of Scripture, and it would be a verse just for us. And then the guy would come and pray for the offering. I couldn't believe God could use it. But I'm not kidding you. He would pray something and say something in his prayer that was just for us. I want to tell you that when you get in the presence of God, blessing comes to you. And you'll recognize it very obviously. So I wondered, how do we experience the, the presence of God today? Well, the first way, look in, in Psalm chapter 19 with me real quickly. Psalm chapter 19, a couple of verses that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, you may have even memorized them. Uh, probably most of you have sung them. You know, the Psalms were just songs for us. 
Uh, and this one has, was made into a song. I remember as a teenager singing this song. But in Psalm chapter 19, there's just two verses that I want you to see. There's a whole bunch in here that we could go over, but for sake of time, we'll just do two. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, the law of the Lord is what? Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is what? Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are what? They're right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are what? Enlightening the eyes. I want to say something to you. I really believe... And I, I appreciate so much, Pastor, emphasizing in our church, reading through your Bible in a year. I really appreciate that. I don't know too many pastors who have the courage to do that. And frankly, I think it's because, well, I better not, well, I'm already into it. I might as well just say it. I wonder how many pastors are reading through their Bible in a year. Listen, I want to tell you something. You cannot get in the presence of God apart from the Word of God. I believe with all my heart there is no work of God without the Word of God. If I want God to work in my life, I've got to get His Word in my heart. Many mornings when I open my Bible, I say to God, would you do the work in me that needs to be done? I may not even want you to do it, but I need you to do it. So would you use your Word as the hammer today? And would you use it as a consuming fire today? Would you use your Word to draw me into the image of Christ that you, didn't, you made me for? That doesn't happen apart from the Word of God. There's no substitute for the Word of God. So if you want to be in the presence of God, by the way, I hope you make the same discovery Obed-Edom made, that in the presence of God, there's blessing. Now, I don't know about you, but I want all the blessing God can give me. And if you're not going to use yours, I'll take yours. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I am selfish, I guess. I was going to say I'm not, but I really am. I want all the blessing that God can give me. And I realize if I want the blessing of God, I need to be in the Word of God every day. And by the way, nobody should have to force you into the Word of God. It should be that you desire to know God this intimately, that you want to know everything about Him. I remember when Terry and I were dating, actually we'd gotten engaged on Christmas Eve, and uh, she had the gall to join a missions team and go away for the whole summer, that next summer. She went to Alaska to work with children in Alaska, had a great summer there, and uh, we decided before she left, we would write back and forth, you know, to stay connected with each other. She wrote to me every day. I'm not lying to you. Post Office Box 95 in Oaks, PA. I would go down there every day, and I would find a letter from my wife. And I wrote to her every month. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still paying for that. But anyway, let's, let's move on from that. But I can remember, you know, I would volunteer every day. My mom and dad were so curious. Why does Jim keep volunteering to go get the mail? He never wants to go get any other time. Well, I tell you why. Because my sweetheart was writing me a letter. And I would read that. I would, you know, I'd bring the rest of the mail and I'd stick that one in my pocket. I'd say to mom, here's all the mail. And I'd go up to my room. And I would read that letter and I would read it over and over and over again. Because my sweetheart had written to me. I wanted to know her as well as I could know her. Why should I treat God differently? He's written me words that are so precious that men have given their lives for this book. And I want to tell you something. If you want to be in the presence of God, you've got to get in the Word of God. The second thing I know gets me in the presence of God is prayer. Uh, it's, it was important for Jesus to get alone to pray. If it was important for Jesus, the Son of God, to get alone and pray, then I think it's probably important for us 
as well. By the way, prayer is not just you and I asking God for everything we want. It's not our, it's not our Christmas list that we go to God with every day. It's a time where we certainly do get to ask God for things we need, but it's a time where we thank God for what he's done for us. We adore him. We spend time in confession of our sins to him. We, we uh, spend some time asking him for the things we need. We spend some time asking for the things some others need that we know. But it's a time, I, by the way, I, I know God does not speak in an audible voice, but I cannot tell you the times when I've been praying and God has touched my heart with a thought, as though I heard a voice from God, which I have not heard a voice from God. Intimacy with the time alone with God in prayer is vitally important to be in the presence of God. And then the third thing I put down, so Bible, spending time in the Word of God, spending time in prayer. But the third thing is spending time praising God. And I wrote down on my notes, Psalm 136. Take some time and read it later. Uh, it starts off, oh, give thanks unto the Lord. And, and every verse ends with what? His mercy endureth forever. Now, I want to tell you something. I have not woken up one day that I did not need the mercy of God. A very dear friend of mine said to me, don't worry about it. If you, if you use up all of God's mercy today, tomorrow morning, his nurse, mercies will be new and he'll have a new bucket full waiting for you. And you know what? We can praise God. There's so much we can praise God for. I, I shouldn't have to tell you a lot about that, but spending time in the Word of God brings us the presence of God. Spending time in prayer brings us into the presence of God. Spending time in praise, in prayer. By the way, I said to the deaf this morning, I was teaching them about praise this morning because it said the shepherds glorified and praised God after they'd met Jesus Christ there in the manger. And praise literally means to sing. To God, I said to them, we're going to change the word sing from S-I-N-G to S-I-G-N. You all think about that a little bit. <laughs> but the deaf can praise God too. They, they can't, their voices, they can use their voices, but it frankly doesn't sound real great. But they can sign to God, they can praise God with their hands. And that's what we need to do. Uh, so we need to spend time in the word of God. We need to spend time in the house of God. We need to spend time in fellowship with God's people. We need to do all that we can to stay within the presence of God. Now I want to tell you something. If you've had a rough past, if you've had a past that you'd, you'd wish you, you had never done, by the way, I think we've all done some of those things we wish we'd never done. But if, if it was outside the principles of the Word of God, now it's a good time for you to start following the principles of the Word of God every day in your life. I think of Psalm 84, verse 10. It says, For a day in the courts, in thy courts, is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And you know, I want to tell you something. It's a blessing to me when I come in this church and I see some folks at our doors that I know used to be in other places. But here they are, being a doorkeeper in the house of God, happy to leave the tents of wickedness behind. And I want to tell you, Obed-Edom made a discovery. That discovery was, in the presence of God, there's blessing. Let me give you the second thing that, about Obed-Edom. The second thing is the decision that he made. Go back to 2 Samuel 6, if you've left it. In 2 Samuel 6, notice what happens. Verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. By the way, pause for just a moment, look up. Let me say this to you. When God blesses you, other people will notice it. 
You have unsaved neighbors that live near you. They're going through difficulties just like you'll go through, but they're going to watch God bless you in your difficulties, and they're going to say, wait a minute, what's different about him than me? Oh, wait a minute, that guy talks about God. He's in the presence of God, or she's in the presence of God. Dave Davis was sharing with us on Friday the testimony of one of his coworkers who uh, got online and watched his testimony of how close he was to death and God bringing him back. I want to tell you something. The world is watching you and I. And somebody was watching Obed-Edom because word got back to David, according to verse 12, that God had blessed the house of Obed-Edom. Look back there in that verse. And all that pertaineth unto him. Why? Because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Verse 13. And Pastor mentioned this last week, and it was so, I love this picture, that when they, had, they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings, and so on it goes. But David makes a decision, okay, uh, Obed-Edom's home is being blessed. It's time for us to get the Ark of the Covenant back in, our, in, in Jerusalem. It's, it's time to bring it back home. Would you turn to First Chronicles now with me, chapter 16? I'm getting you to turn a little bit tonight because parts of this story are throughout these books of history. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, you need to see what happens after this event that we just read. If you look in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1, you'll read what we just read there in 2 Samuel 6. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. Now you're saying, Jim, uh, I don't see the, uh, I don't see the uh, decision that Obed-Edom made. Where is it? Well, read a little further down. Look at verse 4. And he appointed, this is David, appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to, re and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. He begins to name the people. Look at verse 5. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, Jael, and Shemiroth, and Jehiel, and Matthiah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, and... I'm sorry, could you help me with that one? I'm having a little trouble with that one. Obed-Edom made a decision. Here was Obed-Edom's decision. For the three months that ark has been in my home, I have been blessed. My children have been blessed. My wife has been blessed. My home has been blessed. You know what? If they're going to move that Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and they're going to put it in a tent, I'm going with it. Here was the decision that Obed-Edom made. I'm staying with the presence of God. I'm not going to leave it. Now, I want to tell you, Obed-Edom's decision involved some things that we might not think about just initially. It probably meant he had to leave his home. He wasn't going to go back to that home. It probably meant he left some of his friends behind. It may even have meant that he left some of his extended family there where he was in order to stay with the Ark of the Covenant. But one, and I'm sure he left the job that he had. I, I don't know what he did for a living, but I'm sure he left his income behind all because he wanted to remain in the presence of God. The decision that Obed-Edom made, he recognized that the, the presence of God was far more important than any other thing he might have or any other relationship that he might have. You couldn't pry Obed-Edom away from the Ark of the Covenant. He determined, I'm staying with it. So let me ask you a question. 
What would it take to pry you away from reading your Bible every day? What would it take to get you to stop praying faithfully? What, what would it take for you to stop praising God? Obed-Edom made a decision. I'm staying where the presence of God is. I'm going to remain in this place. Now, for him, it happened to be near this piece of furniture. For us, we don't have that furniture. We just have these other things that God's given us. By the way, they're just as powerful, what we have. Matter of fact, it's even more powerful because the day you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, guess who moved in to live with you forever? The Holy Spirit of God. You had the Holy Spirit of God within you, and I, I prayed in my prayer, John 16, 13, where Jesus made the promise to his followers, I'm going to leave you. In that chapter, he said, I'm going to leave you with a comforter. But he said about the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide you into all truth. Can I tell you something? The Holy Spirit's far better than any commentary you can get out of a Christian library. That was a good spot for an amen. Amen. It doesn't work if I have to tell you when to do them, you know? And that, that does, it kind of loses its punch. I'm convinced the longer I've been saved, the more I depend on God's Holy Spirit to teach me than any book would. Because I found, by the way, most of those commentaries on the tough subjects, they don't deal with them. It's frustrating. But I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit of God. The presence of God dwells within us. And that's why when you sin, you feel miserable as a believer. You should feel miserable because the Holy Spirit of God's not happy. And, and, and Paul said, don't you know that you've been bought with a price? You're not your own. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And, and so uh, we, what does it take to get you to stop doing the things that will help you to experience the blessing of the presence of God? I want you to consider that for just a minute. And now let me get, if you would, uh, Obed-Edom didn't care what other people thought about him. He didn't forget uh, about what it had been that made the difference in his life. He stayed with that Ark of the Covenant. Now I want you to get to see the third thing, and then I'm done. I want you to see the dividends that came. Obed-Edom left all that he had. Obed-Edom left everything that he had. He left his home. He left his family. If you'll hit that third one for me. He, he nope, I'm not that one. Go back one, please. Oh, hold on. Yeah, there we go. I'm sorry. That was my fault, not his fault. And they told me, don't blame the guys in the sound room. <laughs> that was my fault. I'll take the bullet for that one. All right. I want you to see these books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles with me, if you would now, and go to. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. First Chronicles, chapter 26, if you would. Same chapter. I want you to see uh, what happened. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I have you in First Chronicles 26? I'm totally flustered because I said the slide at the wrong spot. Go to 1 Chronicles 26 with me. Uh, these books of First and Second Chronicles are history books. And when you're reading through your Bible, if you're honest with me, there are probably times you arrive at these books and you say, oh no. Here we go. Name after name after name after name after name. And yet, these books are really important for us as Christians because tucked within these pages of these history books... God has some incredible blessings. I want you to look with me at verse, beginning in verse 4. And I'm going to read a few verses, so just stay with me if you would. First Chronicles 26, beginning in verse 4. Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom. All right, are you with me? 
So we're going to see the listing of the names of the sons of Obed-Edom now. So moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nathaniel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Paluthai the eighth, for God blessed him. So he had how many sons? Eight sons, very good. Keep going. Look at verse six. Also unto Shemaiah his sons were born, or unto his son were born were sons born that ruled throughout the house of their father. For they were, would you read these words with me? They were mighty men of valor. Verse seven. The sons of Shemaiah, Athnai, and Raphael, and Obed, and Elzabad, whose brethren were strong men, Elihu and Samach, uh, I don't know how to say that one, anyway, verse 8, all these, the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, say it with me, able men for strength for the service. Able men for strength for the service. God calls the sons of Obed-Edom men that were mighty men of valor. Fathers, wouldn't you love to hear that your sons were mighty men of valor? Wouldn't you love to have the Holy Spirit of God breathe those words on the pages of Scripture? Mighty men of valor. It goes on to say there in the end of verse 7, they were strong men. At the end of verse 8, it says they were able men for, the, for strength, for the service. Now, if you would, look up here. I want you to see something. Go ahead. Now's a good time for that one. According to the end of that verse that I, st I stopped just a little short, they were able men for strength of service. They were three score and two of Obed-Edom. That's 62. There are 62 little figures of men on the wall in front of you. Do you think that Obed-Edom made the right choice? <laughs> he made a discovery. Boy, when the, when the Ark of, of the Covenant is in my home, God blesses me. David comes along three months later and said, okay, Obed-Edom, O-E, I think that's what David probably called him. O-E, thanks for holding on to the ark for us. We're going to take it back to Jerusalem. And O-E said to his wife, honey, pack up. We're going. Kids, get your stuff together. We're leaving. Dad, where are we going? I don't know, but we're going wherever the ark of the covenant's going. Amen? We're going to stay with the presence of God. I don't know where it's going, but I know one thing. I'm going to be a doorkeeper at the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to teach you all to play the psaltery, and you're going to play the psaltery at the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to spend the rest of your lives near the presence of God because I want your lives to be different. Amen. And I can't make that difference in you, but God has made that difference in me. And I want to make sure you're near the presence of God. Sixty-two sons. We don't know about the daughters. I'm sure there was a bunch of them too. Sixty-two of the sons that came from Obed-Edom were faithfully serving God. I want to say to you tonight, it's important to stay in the presence of God. If we want our children, by the way, you know, I find that, that we older people, and yes, I'm one of us, 
one of the older people, we do a lot of complaining about the younger generation. We do. We're, by the way, can I tell you, that's just whining. And it's tired and old. It's time we stop doing that. Honestly. Because you know what? You were one of them one time, and we were just as bad as the kids are today. I think we were worse. I say to my wife, what was your dad thinking when he told me I could marry you? I think he needed to be hit on the head with a sledgehammer after that. I was not the greatest guy in the whole wide world, I can tell you. But praise God, there were some people who were patient with me in ministry. And I want to tell you, it's time for us to stop looking at the younger generation and blaming them for the way they are because it is not their fault completely. Now, they have responsibility, no question. But they need an Obed-Edom. They needed us to stay in the presence of God. They needed us to stay in the Word of God. They needed us to be on our knees in prayer before God, begging Him for His answers to the challenges that faced us. They needed to see us praising God in church. They need to see us singing at the top of our lungs in church. We wonder why they don't sing in church anymore. We're the leaders. Obed-Edom, 62 young men followed Obed-Edom. They loved God like he loved God. And I want to challenge you tonight. The children of Obed-Edom had special places in the kingdom of David. Their names are here in the Bible. It doesn't get any better than that. I'm told, history tells us, that one of the guild of the Levites adopted the name of Obed-Edom for the keepers of the ark. Pretty, pretty cool stuff for a guy who just happened to be in the town where Uzzah, Uzzah died. And they, oh, let's just put it in Obed-Edom's house, just arbitrarily. Oh, no, it wasn't arbitrary at all. And I want to tell you one day, I think when we get into heaven, we're going to be able to meet these 62 men. And we're going to be able to say, hey, tell us what your dad was like. And we'll get to see Obed-Edom and ask him what he did. It's going to be an exciting time in heaven. I want to say to you tonight as I close, it's important for us to get our families around the presence of God. It's important for us to be in the presence of God first. Because, by the way, our children will do what they see us do, not what they hear us say. Our children will follow what we have done, good or bad. Amen? I can remember getting ready to yell at Patrick, our son, one time. And I was really getting ready to light into him. I mean, he had done something, and when I got ready to get after him, I realized he learned that one from me. All of a sudden, my criticism of him lightened. I could understand a little bit better that he was a sinner and he needed to recognize the forgiveness that a father could give him. Are you with me? We need to lead as fathers and adults in our home. We need to get around the presence of God. Now, I know it's Christmas time, and we think about gifts that we could uh, give our families and our friends and, and those things. I don't think there's any gift we could give our family that would be better than setting the example for spending time in the presence of God. So I want to encourage you this Christmas, give a gift to your family, to your wife, to your husband, to your children, of you getting in the Word of God and letting the Word of God get into you, of you spending time in prayer so deeply that God does have the opportunity to speak to you while you speak to Him. And then go ahead and praise God. Pastor talked about it this morning. I don't need to rehash that. Just go ahead and praise God. It's all right to get excited. You know, I remember uh, I was sitting down here in the orchestra one Sunday, and we were playing a, a song. I don't even remember the song, and there was a man right over here that stood up. He couldn't take it anymore. He just stood up. He was so excited, and he just stood there. And 
he was just, he wasn't saying a word. He was just standing there. He couldn't sit any longer. And I was like, whoa, I want to be able to do that. I'm too scared to do that. I'm afraid what you might say about me if I did that. <laughs> but I was glad he did it. It touched my heart. We shouldn't be afraid, afraid to praise God. And we should be quick to praise God. By the way, whatever good things happen as a result of your life probably weren't because of you. They were because of what God did in you. So give him the praise for it. You can't receive a better gift than the opportunity that God gives each of us to spend time with him every day. I hope you'll realize in the presence of God there's blessing. I hope you'll make the decision tonight that you're going to stay right in the presence of God. And then I hope one day that we'll be able to see the dividends that God gives us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity we've had to open the Word of God, to be in this fellowship, to sing together, to praise you together. God, we must admit we didn't do it with all of our might like we probably should have. And so we pray that you would help us with that. Help us not to come to VFBT to play church. Help us not to come here to be seen by others. Help us not to just come here to see others. But help us to come here with the hope that you're going to do an eternal work in our hearts and lives. The Word of God's faithfully preached here, and we thank you for that. It's, it's faithfully taught in our ABFs. Thank you for that. It's, it's Wednesday night. We get opportunities to have specialized classes that hit us where we live. Thank you for that. I thank you for the ESL class. We have unsaved people coming here just trying to learn English, and God, we get to share the word with them. Thank you for that. Thank you that tomorrow night there'll be a gym full of guys here who probably won't walk into this church, but will come there to play basketball and get to hear the gospel. God, I thank you for that. And we're even going to be able to use ping pong. I can't believe that, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that you allow us to be a light in a dark world. Now I pray that you'd help us to realize the blessings of life come from being in the presence of God. God, drive us to your word. Help us to feast there on the words of God, not just on Sundays, but every day we live. Help us to open the word of God and allow it to open our hearts and get into our lives. Help us to spend time with you in prayer, in intimate prayer. And then, God, help us to praise you with all of our heart and life. God, I thank you that... Uh, that you sent your son in a humble manger. And Lord, we want to make our hearts your Bethlehem. We want to be people like Obed-Edom who do more than just talk about God, but who make sacrifices to stay in the presence of God. Help us to do it tonight. Lord, if there's somebody here that's not saved, if they died right now, they don't know for sure they'd go to heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would put that, that holy unrest in their heart. And help them to seek out a pastor or someone who can help them. Lord, there's many of us here who love to spend time telling someone how they can know they're going to heaven. God, you know my heart. I would, I would thrill for that. I pray, Lord, that you'd help. If there's a person here that's not saved, please don't let them leave tonight unsaved. Help them to settle that, that in their hearts. Help them to make things right with you and know they're on their way to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for Obed-Edom. Help us to use him as a good example in our lives to follow. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.